Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? Hey folks, just a fair warning that we will be discussing George Floyd and related incidents in this podcast. Also, I had a slight technical problem with my microphone during the recording of this podcast, which means the sound is a bit off. I'm really sorry about that. I know it's annoying, but I do assure you this is a good episode. So please bear with us and we really appreciate it. So normally I start by asking Rena what she's been getting obsessed with this week, but I already know actually what she's been getting obsessed with. That's a quick behind the scenes kind of insight into how we run our podcast. Normally we text each other during the week a lot. I think we send about 100 messages each. So she's been getting obsessed with the police. But I wanted to start this podcast slightly differently because I had a really interesting conversation last night with a friend who has a colleague who is our age, so a young woman who lives in Berlin. And she maintains an opinion which I found quite shocking and disappointing and kind of angering. And she maintains that probably what happened to George Floyd was a mistake on the part of the police. So despite the fact that there is video evidence that there was a way disproportionate amount of force used to arrest someone who allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes, and despite the fact that there is video evidence of an unarmed man who has cuffs on and who is surrounded by four cops who have had between them over 20 complaints, including fatal shootings, and then there is one guy on his neck constantly for 10 minutes, and he is saying, I can't breathe. He says it 16 times in less than five minutes, and over the course of nine minutes, he becomes unconscious, and bystanders are yelling at the cops to tell them to do something to get off him, and that doesn't happen until medical assistance arrives and they do not check his pulse or anything, and only the EMTs tell the cop to get off him, despite the fact that all of this is clear and evident and has set off a wave of protests worldwide because we all feel, as human beings, the visceral pain of a man shouting out that he can't breathe and for his mama, and it's heartbreaking. Despite all this, she still maintains that it could have been a mistake by the police. And because we've been thinking about the police, she's a white woman, let's start with that. I just wanted to ask you, Rena, why do you think this opinion exists and what the problems are with this perspective? I think that is an absolutely insane opinion to have. I would also be curious to know if she means accident, not mistake, which doesn't make it any better. It's also worth noting that he was charged with second degree murder, which is also correct. He shouldn't be charged with first degree murder because first degree murder means that it was preemptive and this wasn't preemptive, but it was on purpose. And that's what second degree murder is. So that charge is also correct. If he was charged with first degree murder, like a lot of people are calling for him to be charged with, he would probably be let go because you can't prove that he planned this ahead of time. So second degree murder is what we want him to be charged with. Here's the thing about the police in Minnesota. They have a history of killings like this. In 2015, they shot a 24-year-old black man in the head. They say that they acted in self-defense, but I mean, what? How is that a thing? Like, no. His name was Jamar Clark. Despite the fact that there were protests and there was evidence against him, it was found that the police officer did not violate department policy. 
that's a really important thing to note. Not that the killing of Jamar was murder, but that it did not violate department policy. So since then, there have been at least a dozen police reform bills, and they've all failed to make meaningful progress in state legislation. In 2014, Minneapolis became one of six cities to pilot the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice that Obama's administration put into place, which is a response to the National call for police accountability. So within the last couple of years, there have been a lot of programs, teachings, other things in Minnesota, but also around the USA to hold police accountable and to teach them how to deal with citizens better. They've had training, nonviolent training, and clearly this has all failed because a man was just essentially asphyxiated, right? He was choked to death by the police. So you can't say that it was an accident or that it was a mistake stake when they've had six years of training on how to not do this. Do you think after six years of active training and bills and legislations, they did not realize what they were doing? The police officer isn't an idiot. He knows how the human body functions. He completely realized that by blocking someone's windpipe for nine minutes, you are going to kill them. Also, it's worth noting that this is not just a problem in Minnesota or in the US. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is a US problem. And yes, it's a really big problem in the US, but it happens everywhere in the world. There were just protests a few days ago in France over the death of Adama Traor. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. He was a 24-year-old black man born in the suburbs of Paris, and he died after being arrested in 2016. And one of the three arresting officers told investigators that they had pinned Traor down with their combined body weight, which is also a case of suffocation and I can't breathe. But since then, for over four years, there have been four different medical reports into the cause of his death, and no was convicted and the French police say, well, we don't have a problem with racism and there were protests against this in France. In Japan, there are protests in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, but also acknowledging the fact that there is police brutality and xenophobia in Japan. In England, where I come from, we have countless cases of black and ethnic minorities who die in police custody. For example, Jimmy Mubenga, who in 2010 died on a plane on the Heathrow runway after being restrained by three immigration officers. And an inquest into his death found that he had been unlawfully killed, but the immigration officers were later acquitted of manslaughter. In 2017, we have Russian Charles, who lost his life in Hackney after being restrained by police officer and choking on a package of caffeine and paracetamol in his mouth. Again, 2017, Edson DaCosta, 25-year-old father, died in very similar circumstances. The list goes on and on and on. This has been a problem. This is a problem. The last time, just to put it into perspective, considering all of these deaths in the UK, the last time a police officer was successfully prosecuted in the UK was in 1969, and that was a very famous case over David Oluwale. So denying the reality of all of this all over the world and the fact that black and ethnic minorities are targeted and killed regularly by police officers who are above the law and effectively hardly ever brought to justice is just so disrespectful and is something that goes beyond facts. And I think if you are denying this, you really have to take a long, hard look at why it makes you uncomfortable to admit that white people 
are killing black people. In regards to France, my mom actually said something interesting because I was talking to her about all of this. And I guess worldwide now, right, the American police has sort of the reputation as being the most racist and the most brutal. And she told me that when she was younger, that was a reputation that the French police had. And I was like, I wonder when that flip happened. It was probably due to the internet and social media, right? Because France is next to Germany. So the stream of news there was probably a lot, flowed a lot more than it did from America. So that's why that perception that the French police was more violent, because they were more likely to get that news than, you know, the killing of an unarmed black man somewhere in Minnesota back in the 70s and 80s that potentially probably wouldn't even reach Europe because we didn't have the internet. And then I also wanted to point out that Germany is just as complicit in the killing of black men and men of color. There have been several cases where both men and women have died in police custody. I'm looking at a list here and I can see eight. And so, yes, I think that it's less than it is in the U.S. and elsewhere. But I also think that in that case, you need to take into consideration the fact that Germany is a lot less diverse than the U.S. Thus, there's less people who are victims of this because there's not as many. And also, this is just the number of reported cases. I think that that's also always really important to note because there are so many cases that never reach the media, never are reported. So we know of eight solid cases where people of color died in police custody in Germany. How many died of wounds or of injuries inflicted by the police that are not associated with them? Yeah, I mean, France is terrible even now. I was talking to a friend who was Swiss Algerian about the fact that we are doing this podcast today on the police. And she said that when she was 16 or 17, one of her brother's friends, who was also Arab, was arrested and incarcerated for no reason. And they kept him all night, pissed on him, insulted him and beat him. And he never spoke a word about it because he knew nothing would happen. And she says, this was 20 years ago, and it breaks my heart to see that we are still standing at the same point. And now in France, significantly, like the reason George Floyd got so much attention was because bystanders were filming what was happening. So they made it public, it went to social media, it got a movement going behind it. So in France right now, they are passing a law that makes it illegal for members of the public to film police officers doing their job. That reminds me of that Will Smith quote where he said that racism isn't getting worse, it's just getting filmed. John Oliver on last week tonight, I can't remember the figure exactly, but the use of body cams meant that the number of complaints against the police went down really significantly. Like, I don't know, like 80% or something. The figure was quite astounding. So it's really important that police get held accountable. And this is key. This is what's not happening right now. The police are above the law, which means that they can do whatever they like, include murder people. And as has been shown over and over and over again, they are doing this. And this is not just an American problem because the structure that lies below the fact that they think that they have the right to do whatever they like to black bodies or to ethnic minorities is deeply rooted in our culture and our society and in our everyday ideas about race. 
And so as a white person, you might see the police as a protective force, but as a black person, you see it as an oppressive force. And this is a key difference. And the history of the police or the formation of the police in the US and elsewhere, but let's talk about the US right now. The economics that drove the creation of the police forces in the south of the US were centered on the preservation of the slavery system. So the modern day police in the US as we know it today is sort of based on the slave patrol. If you look at the badges that the US police carry nowadays, you will see the direct influences from the slave patrol. And if you don't know what the slave patrol is, the slave patrol was, just as the name states, an organized group of armed white men who monitored and enforced discipline upon black slaves in the South. In particular, the slave patrol came into prominence after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War because the Emancipation Proclamation freed all slaves in the South. And so they started trying to escape the plantations on which they were to make it to the Union. And so between 1862 and 1863, the slave patrol evolved into a militia because more slaves were running away and trying to make it to the Union. So the history and the foundation upon which the modern day police is built is to control and kill black people. And that's fucked up. Yeah, the systematic oppression of African-American in the eras of institutionalized slavery was replaced by the Jim Crow laws, which reestablished this racial hierarchy, basically a bunch of social control, segregation, which still established that black people were inferior and treated differently from white people. And then once the Jim Crow legal system was brought down in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, the war on drugs introduced another system of repression. So drugs is a really important way that black people are discriminated against because for most crimes, there's a victim and then they go report it to the police. But when it comes to drugs, nobody really reports that because both the buyer and the seller are both doing something illegal. So the police have to go out, the white police who have that power and who are employed in the structure, go out and look for at people's behaviors and see, you know, who they think are committing crimes. And there are a whole load of injustices here, but basically the war on drugs put more people into incarceration in the U.S. than black people in apartheid. And the U.S. maintains the highest incarceration rate in the world. It's eight times higher than Germany. And you're much more likely to be stopped if you're black rather than white. Also, interestingly, while I was doing the research on this, I found that color affects your experience of the justice system. Research showed that if you are a dark-skinned African-American, you will get a longer jail sentence than people of color who are lighter-skinned. Astonishingly, the United States contains only 5% of the world's population, but it is home to 25% of its prison population. And this has to do with economics. So America still has slavery. 100%. The prison system is a slavery system. To briefly explain it, I highly recommend you all go watch the movie The 13th on Netflix. It explains it, but I'll do a quick summary here. So Congress passed the 13th Amendment on January 31st, 1865 and ratified it on December 6th, 1865. And the 13th Amendment is the amendment to the Constitution to abolish slavery in the USA. However, it states that involuntary servitude 
food, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the U.S. And it is this part of the amendment that is incredibly important and relevant to the prison system today. Because it means that you can be put into involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime. Now, to quickly summarize how this is relevant in the U.S. today, as you mentioned, it's predominantly people of color who are put into jail in the U.S. system. America has a privatized jail system, which means that, for example, minimum wage isn't applicable in prisons, so they can have prisoners work for them and basically pay them nothing. And so these really rich people will buy prisons and produce merchandise within those prisons and basically have it made for free. They're using the prisoners as slaves. And this is completely legal, according to the 13th Amendment. And there's also some really great documentaries on Netflix. I highly recommend you go check them out. That documents how these rich privatized prison owners will actively bribe judges to convict black men specifically for very menial crimes. They will serve really harsh sentences for things that a white person would get a fine or slap on the wrist from because they know that they can get away with it. If you put these men into jail, you can work them into the ground, make money off of them, and a racist system doesn't give a shit about them. And so they get away with it. And it's technically perfectly legal, except for the bribing of the judges under the 13th Amendment. Also should make a really brief note about Comstat, which is a system that is in place in New York City and elsewhere in the US. It is a system where cops have to ticket a certain amount of crimes per day. Now, this was put into place in the 70s and 80s because cops in New York City were simply not reacting to calls from people of color. So they would call to report a break-in or a rape. And it's not even that the cops wouldn't take it seriously or dismiss them. They would just flat out ignore it. So the system was put into place so that if you were patrolling in a predominantly Black neighborhood and you had to report 10 crimes per day, you would react to people's calls of distress. But what's happened now is obviously the crime rate in New York has gone down. The racial injustice is still in place and the NYPD is still a terrible, terrible organization, but the amount of crime has gone down. So you still have police having to write 10 tickets per day, but not 10 obvious things are happening right in front of them or they're not getting as many distress calls. So they start ticketing people for ridiculous and absolutely ridiculous things. Reply All does a really great episode about it. We'll link it in the show notes in which they give the example of a young man waiting outside a deli before it opens and a cop comes by and gives him a ticket for loitering, even though he's just waiting. And America had the system called three strikes and you're out. That means if you have three offenses, regardless of how serious they are, you are put into prison for life. And this is the tough on crime bill. And obviously these tickets for loitering are predominantly given out to black people or not just loitering, but similar stupid, stupid tickets are given out predominantly to people of color within New York City. So they are more likely to have three strikes throughout. So you can be waiting to get your 
morning coffee before you go to work, get a ticket, and without having done anything wrong, if this happens twice, you're put into jail for life for doing absolutely nothing? That's some shit. Patrice Khan Collins, in her book, When They Call You a Terrorist, talks about growing up in a black neighborhood in the 1990s in Los Angeles. And she describes exactly what you're saying. When she was nine years old, she witnessed her 12-year-old brother and his friends being thrown up against the wall by police officers before being partially stripped and searched. All they were doing were just talking in an alleyway. After that incident, police carried on arresting her teenage brothers on a regular basis. I remember my mum used to work with a British Caribbean lady and she came home one night and she said, oh, Annette and I were having this conversation, which I found really surprising because she said she doesn't worry at all when her girl goes out, you know, and is out till all hours of the night. She worries more about her boy because the police could take him in, arrest him, assault him and maybe kill him. And also in this book, she talks about how the public school system treats black children. For example, even though high school shootings typically occur in white schools, it is only black schools that have police officers in full bulletproof armor patrolling the halls. It is only black children who are thrown from their seats by school safety officers for the crime in quotation marks, of having their mobile phones out in class. And like you mentioned, in a really shocking example, there was a 12-year-old girl in Detroit who was nearly expelled and criminally prosecuted for writing the word hi on her school locker. And what that also goes into in this book, she went to a kind of predominantly white middle school and then switched to a black school. And she says, well, in the white school, everyone was smoking weed in the bathrooms, as you do. And nobody got prosecuted, nobody cared. It went unnoted. She did it once in her new black school and almost got arrested. So we're criminalizing black children. So let's go back to this colleague of a friend who I think we've kind of explained that this is an entire system that serves white people and is oppressive to black people. The prison system and the politics of policing is tied to economics. So capitalism and Black Lives Matter are kind of linked because capitalism functions by exploiting the masses for the benefit of the few at the top. And how do you keep that system in place without everyone at the bottom rising up to overthrow the few at the top? You divide them, right? So you start creating these racial policies and a lot of racial policies in the US were created just... So, yeah... The war on drugs was declared even before drugs was a real problem in the U.S. It began in the 1970s with Richard Nixon's strategy of playing on existing racial divisions to gain an electoral advantage. However, it really took hold when the Reagan administration declared a war on drugs in 1982. Although the initiative was framed as a drug war, it had far more to do with race than anything else. At the time, a war on drugs came somewhat as a surprise, as only 2% of the Americans believed that illegal drug use represented the country's most urgent political issue. So what was the motivation behind the war on drugs? It had to do with the concerns of the poor rural whites who both resented progress in the black civil rights movement and had strong fears motivated by racist ideas that had been perpetuated for centuries. In this political context, the Reagan administration launched a major media campaign and started pumping money into drug law enforcement. It's worth noting that when the drug war was launched, even conservatives 
in Reagan's own party were skeptical. But this changed in 1985 when crack cocaine appeared in poor black neighborhoods, leading to a major spike in violence and drug use. There's also those who say that crack cocaine was purposely introduced into these neighborhoods by the CIA and the FBI so that American law enforcers purposely introduced these drugs. For the Reagan administration, crack cocaine and the violence it inspired was a convenient way to justify a war on drugs. See the link here. Accordingly, the DEA ramped up its public awareness efforts, drawing attention to the new crack problem that they probably created. Soon enough, the media jumped on the bandwagon too, playing up the characterizations, not without racial subtext, of black crack whores and crack babies in the public imagination. especially during the Nixon era, the Reagan era, were created to make these divides between working class white people and black people. So in a racist society, it's typical that the racist policies are implemented first, usually because they benefit somebody somewhere, right? And then the racist narratives come afterwards to justify the policies. So I'll give you an example. So the very concept of race did not exist until the 15th century, when Portugal began trading enslaved Africans. And then decades later, just after this started happening, this idea of the black race was born. Because how do you justify that you are enslaving people or treating them with less humanity than yourself? So the Portuguese propagated this notion that people of this race were inherently lazy and and savage and needed to be saved. So the self-interested racist policy came first, and then the racist idea that justified it came afterwards. And these ideas are still prevalent today. When you see a white man kneeling on a black man's neck and killing him, and you feel that maybe the white man must have made a mistake or if it was an accident, and you're confused about where the blame lies... You are upholding the idea that that African-American man is not really a man. He's subhuman, he's an animal, he's an object, he's not equal to you. And that idea is, it's racist. So there's an article in The Guardian that's focusing on the NYPD. I should add that probably a lot of the things that I read and sort of focus on are centered around New York because I lived there and a lot of my friends are there. So I just want to, you know, apologize in advance if this is very New York focused. But this article makes reference to Eric Garner's death also by choking in 2014 on Staten Island in New York. And they mention that the use of chokeholds has been banned in New York. However, that between 2015 and 2018, the NYPD settled 30 lawsuits involving use of this lethal maneuver. So the police know, and you can't tell me that they don't know, they know that this isn't allowed, that it's lethal, that it can kill people, and they still do it. But in regards to the NYPD, they have an annual budget of $6 billion. This is four times more than the budget for the Department of Health and for the Department of Homeless Services. This is five times more than New York allocates to housing and six times more than they allocate to youth and community development. That's crazy. What do the NYPD need $6 billion for? It's no wonder that they have such an inflated ego. They can buy ridiculous things. They can roll 
roll up looking like the military. There was a video posted two or three days ago of the police in Buffalo, New York, which is a small town in upstate New York, where on June 2nd, they were kneeling with protesters. And then on June 3rd, it showed the very same square where a day before they had been kneeling with of the police knocking over an elderly man. He's not do he's walking and you see him just fall like a cardboard box and blood starts pouring out the back of his head and they walk over him. They do not care. They keep going. In the background, you notice that about like 10 seconds in, someone from the National Guard attends to him. That's because there's actually someone who holds the National Guard accountable. There is nobody who holds the police accountable. If the police can shoot an unarmed teenager in the head and internally it is found to not violate department policy, then what the fuck? The only course of action is to defund the police. Furthermore, I would actually advocate for banning the police or getting rid of the police altogether. One in four people shot dead by the police have a psychiatric condition. Police aren't trained to deal with mental illness, and they often aren't aware that what they're about to walk into is a person who's dealing with a mental breakdown or has some sort of a condition. So a proposal has been made to send social workers instead of police, because obviously they are equipped to deal with these situations. A lawyer has to attend school for seven years to learn the law. And in America, the cops only have to go to the academy for eight weeks. How are people who learn the law for eight weeks equipped to deal with the situation? They often have absolutely no expertise in the situation they're about to walk into. So we don't need the police to go deal with people who are mentally ill. We don't need the police to deal with peaceful situations with extreme violence. The police have an inflated head because they know that the law is on their side and they can get away with anything. We need to defund or completely get rid of the police and instead replace it with qualified and trained experts. If you send a qualified social worker to deal with a situation where a person who is having some sort of a um, mental breakdown or condition, they are more likely to get the help that they need instead of being shot to death for having a psychiatric condition, which is what happens when you send the police because they react with extreme violence and force to situations that do not call for it. Yeah, so just to add to that argument, the US currently spends more than $100 billion annually on policing and an additional $80 billion on incarceration. And the argument to defund the police is basically the argument that that money should be going to building communities that the police forces were, as we've discussed, designed to oppress and destroy. To put it into perspective, it would cost about $20 billion to effectively eliminate homelessness in the United States. It would cost $34 billion to ensure free college for every American. And again, the Americans spent more than $100 billion on police. And as Ben O'Keefe has said on social media, the regulation and state-sponsored persecution of black and brown bodies by the police not only is meant to uphold white supremacy, but also continue to force black folks to serve as collateral for the white capitalist men that rule 
our society. Capitalism has a massive interest in keeping the police force going and alive. And I mean, not just white men who are making money off of the bodies of black people in prison, but also the media and Hollywood. And Hollywood is incredibly complicit in this. It's a very great article in the Washington Post called Shut Down All Police Movies and TV Shows Now. The longest running TV show in America is the reality TV show Cops. Likewise, the longest running German TV show is Tatort, which means crime scene. There are over 300 police dramas that have aired on American network cable and syndicate television. As the Washington Post points out that in all of these cop dramas, there are never any bad shootings and the cops are always completely justified in their actions. Obviously, this is not to say this is just true in all of them. Obviously, there are TV shows that, you know, are told from different perspectives. But the reality is the majority of these TV shows glorify cop and uphold this narrative narrative that policemen are good people, that they are justified in everything that they do, and that they are on your side. There's also a couple of other issues with cop shows. One, they build this narrative that money is being effectively spent, that crime is more prevalent than it actually is, and that police use of force is consistently justified. So if you watch crime shows, the way that the police system works within those crime shows is always straightforward, laid out, it's not convoluted, because that isn't good storytelling. That would get in the way of moving the plot along. And I would like to say that as a society, we can tell the difference between fiction and nonfiction. But the truth is, is there is always going to be a gap between reality and fiction. And that by watching these shows, like there's 300 cop shows that have aired on American television. TV has not been around long enough for that to be a small number. That's a ridiculous amount of TV shows only dealing with cops. And spinning this narrative of it all being positive, of them being good guys, of them being here to serve and to save. It's the same with all these superhero movies. All of these Marvel movies, like, first of all, they're incredibly fucked up because Iron Man, Batman, not only are you spinning this narrative that there's clearly good and there's clearly bad, but also the fact that rich billionaires are good people. And by continuing to spin this narrative, right and wrong, black and white, there are good people and there are bad people. And there's always the cops are the good people and the criminals are the bad people. You are justifying the use of violence against people who you are manipulated through television to think of as bad. So you said... Hopefully we can tell the difference between fact and fiction. That's not true because research has shown that in court cases, juries are more likely to believe a cop because they're a cop, which they don't extend to any other person. So if we go back again, it's reflected in this opinion of this person that, hey, the cops, you know, they should have, they're the good guys, right? They probably, it was an accident or they didn't mean it. It doesn't happen that often. Like that kind of idea comes from the fetishization of cops in media. And also as a genre, the crime show format is very conservative because it maintains the status quo. And what we're saying about the status quo is it maintains a certain power structure. So what happens in terms of the format of a cop show is the world is as it is. And then something happens and a figure of authority in this world has to sort everything out and put the threat to our society in jail or remove it altogether in order for us to return to the status quo. But the point is that the status quo is fucked and let's stop maintaining the status quo. If you like this podcast, please rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. 
tweet us. I am at Rena underscore Grobe underscore, and Madvi is at Madvi Romani. Follow us on Instagram at the underscore MS underscore informed, or shoot us an email, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You will find links to our Twitter and Instagrams in our show notes, as well as links to all the content we have discussed this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.